Good morning, Emmanuel. Man, what an honor to be here again. And uh, love your pastor. Obviously, we've been buddies. We met by getting in a fight uh, on the soccer field in fourth grade. And uh, so his dad, Ron, who I think is here today, uh, made us, he was also my Boy Scout troop leader. So after we got in a fight, I showed up at Cub Scouts and I realized it was Nate's house. I'm like, oh no. And uh, so Ron made uh, Nate and I go in the backyard and fight it out. <laughs> and so we became close friends since then. And now we're pastoring and look, that's how you get called into ministry. You, you get in a fight and end up as best friends for life. So it's always an honor to be here. Love Nate and Jody. My wife, Jane, uh, is in the front row. We've been married 31 years this summer. And we have, just so those of you who don't know us, we have three adult children. Two are married. Uh, our son is hanging on by a thread at 28. He's, I'm like, come on, Jesus, before you come back, my son get married. And, uh, and we have three grandchildren, one in heaven, two here on earth with us. Uh, beautiful grandchildren, and uh, our life is incredibly blessed. And just like Nate said, we have been given the privilege of pastoring an incredible church in Michigan called Radiant Church. And uh, we did that, we started that church 27 years ago. And uh, by God's grace, he's just done a miracle in the middle of a cornfield and spread it around our city and even beyond. And we count it a huge privilege every time we get an opportunity to preach God's word, but especially here at Emmanuel, we love this church and love all of you. And I want to invite you, if you would, this morning to open your Bibles with me. How many brought a Bible to church today? Now, bring a Bible to church. Hold your Bible up. I want to see roll call, all locations. All right, hold it up. Now, put it down. Hold up. If you have it on your digital device, you can go ahead and hold that up, too. Go ahead. All right. And if you didn't bring it today because you have memorized it and it's in your heart, go ahead and just raise your hand, too. Okay, praise God. Open your Bible to Acts chapter four. I wanna bring a message to you that is, it's connected to the new book I just released that uh, Pastor Nathan just made reference to. It's called Give No Rest. And over the last couple of years, I have felt that the Lord has given me a mandate and one of those mandates is to stir and to provoke the American church to once again be the church that puts God's presence at the center and becomes a people of prayer. Not just church that prays, but praying churches. And you know, what's unique when you look around the landscape of the church global is about three quarters of the church, and by the way, America, Amer the American church only represents about 20% of global Christianity. And so when you look at the rest of the other 80% of the church globally, even though they are in some of the most difficult environments and circumstances and places and cultures, those churches or the church is exploding in revival. I mean, right now the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, which is an Islamic nation where it's illegal. You pay with your life if you convert to Christianity. Second fastest growing church in the world is Afghanistan. If you look anywhere on the landscape, whether it's South America, Africa, far Asia, the Middle East, it doesn't matter. You will see the church 
in revival, and I define revival as operating in partnership with heaven and experiencing Book of Acts results. And so you see that taking place. The one place on the face of the earth that has a history of experiencing revival, but is currently right now in a place of status quo, stagnation, and even to some degree, experiencing some of the pains of moving away from the presence of God is the American church. And so my, my call, or one of the things I believe that God has given to me in this period of time as a mandate is to call the church to a place of prayer. And Acts chapter four is a perfect place to start. In Acts chapter four, <coughs> we find the church living in the midst of the early beginnings of the church mission. The explosion of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two led to the persecution of the apostles in the church in Acts chapter four. And so they've been brought in. I won't read the whole chapter, but Peter and John especially have been brought in. They've been told not to preach in the name of Jesus. You're gonna lose everything. We're gonna cancel you. We're gonna throw you in prison. We might kill you if you continue to preach in this name. And in Acts chapter four, the church is trying to figure out what do we do? We're exploding with growth. The presence of God is in our midst. We can't help but preach Jesus, but there's a high price to pay for it. And it says in verse 23, that after they had been released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers together are gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed or whom, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. And now look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And now the full number of those who believed were one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were, given, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great Grace was upon them all. This is what happened when the early church, at a very pivotal moment where the culture shifted against them, responded by being people of prayer. I love that verse 31, it says, and when they had prayed. You know, there are a lot of words in our English vocabulary that, are, that just carry weight to them. It's like you think about words like catalyst. It's just a powerful word. It's just a strong word. Or, you know, nuclear. That's, it's just a big, powerful word. And then you have some words that, 
when you say them, they kind of sound soft, like bread. How many love bread? Anybody love bread? I love bread. Bread doesn't love me, but bread, I, when I think of bread, I just think of soft, warm Carabas loaf that you pull out of the napkin, dip it in the olive oil, and then you gain 10 pounds. How many know what I'm talking about? It's like, I can gain weight just by looking at bread. Bread's a soft word, sleep. Prayer is one of those words that when you say to the average person prayer, they think of silence, solitude, difficulty, don't know how to pray, complexity. And it is one of the things with, if you ask anybody, if you're a Christian, what should you do? Christian, non-Christian, they will automatically say, well, obviously you should pray. But prayer is also one of the things that when you dig down deep into the lives of the average Christian, especially in America today, and say, do you know you should pray? 100% yes. Do you pray? Or do you know how to pray? Or do you understand the power of prayer? Most of us say, I don't pray as much as I should. Or I don't know how to pray. Or is the prayer meeting a priority? Sometimes. And really what it comes down to is, number one, we're ignorant. We don't really understand how to pray or understand how prayer works. But number two, we're challenged because we are called as followers of Jesus to live by faith and not by sight. And so we're more moved by the things that we see in the natural that we trust will result in impact and change more so than the things that the Bible teaches are weapons of our warfare. And the most powerful gift that God has given to the saint beyond the blood of Jesus that washes us clean from our sins is the invitation to be people of prayer. It's the invitation to be Acts 4.31 people and when they had prayed. Leonard Ravenhill, who's a great revivalist of the 20th century, said this, a prophet. He said, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room for the church's spiritual life. Think about that. We can have, we can do everything in the natural in the church. And if we're just honest, here in America, we've got everything that you could ever hope for. We've got buildings, which I love. We've got multiple buildings. We've got great technology. We've got degrees. We've got our Bible colleges, radio, music, Christian television, we, we, everything that you could possibly want. In fact, if you go to other places in the world, the church doesn't have those things. But because we have so much of those things and because we've been discipled subconsciously by a Western Greek way of thinking, we evaluate everything in the natural and we're suspicious and cynical of things that are invisible. And so when you begin to look at things that are going wrong in our culture, wrong in this generation, wrong in our public school systems, wrong in Washington, D.C., wrong down the street, our immediate response is somebody ought to fix it. And the way that they ought to fix it is, you know, somebody ought to put, pull themselves up by them bootstraps or somebody ought to write them a check or somebody ought to tear something down or put it back up. Or we ought to, you know, take up arms or so. All these things that are in the natural. The last thing that we think about is prayer. But yet prayer is the atomic power that heaven gives us to release all of heaven's resources in the places in history and in our lives and in the midst of this generation that are lacking the presence of God. 
It should not be the last thing that we look to. It should be the very first thing that we look to. And what God wants to do in this hour, church, is he wants to turn our mentality around to make us a people who don't just believe in prayer, but we're practicing prayer, soldiers of prayer. People, I'll tell you what, some of the people that you, when we get to heaven that we encounter, that God's gonna say, those were generals of the faith, are gonna be some of the people that we've never heard of or that we've overlooked in this planet. It, one of them will be my great-grandmother, Wilma Norton. 87 years old, she was bound to her chair in her living room. I was a 15-year-old kid. I would go over to her house on summer afternoons, and she had a big old King James 50-pound heathen choker on her lap with a little spiral notebook in there, and she couldn't get out of her chair, but that woman prayed. And if you judged her in the natural, you would think she's an elderly widow. She can't even walk. She has a little dog named Babe, and she watches PTL. And you would think, well, she's not a world changer. I tell you, I am who I am today because of that woman's prayer sitting in that chair. If, if you could see her in the spirit, she was ripped, six foot eight, ripped bodybuilder woman who is special forces, Navy SEALs, who would take on an entire battalion by herself. That's who she was. But as long as we evaluate ourselves, we evaluate heaven, we evaluate each other, and we evaluate the church of Jesus by only what we see in the natural, we will, instead of being a prophet to our culture, we will remain a product of our culture. We'll allow culture to shape us, our emotions, and even our reactions. God wants the church to stop measuring our success by the numbers of people, but by the attendance at the prayer meeting. Because that's, God doesn't count the church, God weighs the church. How much glory is present in his church. And when we read Acts, that's the one thing that they had. They didn't have trains, planes, automobiles, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. They didn't have that. They didn't have Bible college seminaries. They didn't even have fully completed versions of the Bible, but they had the power of the Holy Spirit and an internal perspective in the place of prayer. And that's what God wants to return us back to. And when we read this chapter, it should make us ask this question. What happens if and when the church prays? It says, and when they had prayed, but what happens? What happens if we pray? Will the same thing happen? I believe it will. I believe God responds in any generation, in any culture, in any city, to a praying people. The, what, what I'm gonna share with you in the next few moments here that God did when they prayed is not just descriptive of what God did in the past. It is prescriptive, I believe, of what God wants to do in our generation. What he wants to do here in Minneapolis. Hey, what would happen instead of Minneapolis being on all the major news networks because of conflict, division, and because of all the things that have taken place in this city over the next last three years, what would happen if the news media and the trucks pulled into the city because a portal of heaven opened up over this city and God used this as an epicenter of an American revival? Can you see that with your eyes? <laughs> so what happens when we pray? I want to give you five things that I believe happen here and happen when we choose to be people of prayer. Number one is Prayer shakes us. 
Prayer shakes us. It says in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were, where they were at was shaken. God wants to shake the church, not cause us to be shaken by the things we see happening in our world today. That's fear. You see, the devil wants the church to be shaken, but never stirred by the things that we, he wants us to be paralyzed by fear, but never stirred by the presence of God. But God wants the church to be shaken, shaken in holy awe and reverence of the God that we serve. That when we realize that God is in our midst, much like this story in 1988, I tell a Nate story, so we've got lots of stories on each other. We were in youth group on a Wednesday night, 1988, Wednesday night, Grand Rapids First Assembly, and we're in worship. And our senior year, we experienced, I would say, a micro revival. We saw hundreds of teenagers and our friends get saved and come into our youth group. And so there was a sense of awe and wonder at that time period. And so we're in worship, new believers, and on a Wednesday night, 1988, all of a sudden, the building began to shake, literally. It was like, in the middle of worship, and we're like, what's that? Well, we find out that it was one of the only times in the Midwest that we experienced an earthquake. Like one of the tectonic plates runs right up through the Midwest into Michigan, and there was like an earthquake. And we were so fired up, we're like, yeah! Just like in the book of Acts, we're worship, our worship and our prayer shook the building. I'll tell you what, you want to get a bunch of teenagers fired up, manufacture an earthquake. We could never have manufactured it. And you can look at that and go, well, it was just natural occurrence. Well, we just happened to be in church. But more than the building shaking, I'll tell you what changed me as a teenager was encounters with the Lord at the altar in prayer meetings in which Seeing and encountering the Lord and his holiness and his power that he's not just a figment of our imagination, that he's not just a distant theistic God, but that he's close, he's personal, he's imminent, but he's transcendent and he's powerful. And you begin to encounter the presence of the Lord and it will change you, it will shake you to the core. And that's what we need once again. We don't need a nice, meek, and mild Jesus. We need a raw, undefiled, and wild Jesus to step into the midst of our church and shake the foundations of our faith once again. And this is what happens. Isaiah saw this. It says in Isaiah 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim were circling him with six wings, two wings covering their face because they could not behold him. Two wings covering their bodies because they felt naked and two wings causing them to fly. And all they could say is, holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew word for holy literally means, unlike anything else, it means other than. In other words, there's no words to describe who he is. We sing it this morning, Adonai. Yahweh, all these names, none of them fully encapsulate. He just says, I am that I am. Do you know that that was written in 600 BC? John the Apostle in 90 AD is on the island of Patmos. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, he's invited up into the same throne room that Isaiah sees, and he sees the same living creatures before the same throne. And you know what they're saying 600 years later? Holy, holy, holy. That means they never get bored. 
They never get over the fact that God is God and it shakes them to the core. Jesus wants to shake us to remove all the fear and all the distractions and replace it with a brand new revelation, a fresh revelation of his holiness, which leads to number two, that when we pray, prayer then will embolden us. It says in verse 31b that they proclaim and continue to proclaim the word of God with boldness. And I'll tell you what, we need it now more than ever. Because there used to be a time in our culture where if you told somebody about Jesus, they would say, oh, thank you. I, I mean, I go to church, I love God, or I've heard about that, tell me about the gospel. But we're living in times where the hungry and the thirsty are looking for it, but there is a demonic spirit of intimidation that has been unleashed on our culture. That if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, or you say it wrong, or you say, you make any claims about Jesus being exclusively the way, the truth, and the life, you're gonna get canceled, you're gonna be called a bigot, you're gonna be called all kinds of things. And so people have shut down. And what we've done is we've taken Jesus from being our personal Lord and Savior to being our private Lord and Savior where we keep it to ourselves. But we were never saved to keep it to ourselves. How in the world can we keep the best news that history has ever seen, that God saw us in our sin, didn't require us to fix ourselves, but came as one of us, died in our place, defeated death, rose from the grave, and has filled us with his very life and sent us into the world to proclaim that good news to the rest of the world. How can we hold that in? Listen, our brothers and sisters all over the world are being persecuted. You know what persecution is in America? Somebody didn't like our comment on Facebook. Or somebody unfollowed us. Oh, I'm being persecuted. It's so hard. Let me introduce you to your Iranian brother who's been in prison for 14 months and hasn't seen his family. Yeah, oh, I'm, that must have been tough. But yeah, I got unfollowed by four people. It's time for us to receive a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church and to be filled with boldness. Do you know that in the 1960s and early 70s, when God poured his spirit out and the Jesus revolution upon a bunch of hippies, they went around everywhere proclaiming the good news, unafraid and unashamed. And it's because they had been shaken to their core by who Jesus was. And we need that kind of outpouring again. In fact, I believe we're seeing right now the sprinkling on the windshield of a deluge, an outpouring of God's spirit upon a church that is about to come. A few months ago in February, we saw a small church in Wilmore, Kentucky, or a small Bible college named Asbury, experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A friend of mine is right there in that city. I was in Mexico. I had FOMO so bad. I wanted to get to that revival so bad. But we were on vacation, and friends of mine were there, and they took pictures of signs. Think about this. Town closed because of revival. A town with a population of 1,400 had 20,000 people show up on any given night. And you know what they showed up for? A prayer meeting. It started as a prayer meeting in a college chapel. They had huge name worship leaders who showed up and said, we want to lead worship. And they said, nope. They had preachers who said, I want to show up and preach. Nope. It's going to be led by Gen Z, these people who nobody knows, who have no experience. They've just encountered the presence of the Lord. And God just showed up every night over and over and over. 
And people said, well, what's going on with that? I think God at Asbury just put a little spit on the windshield. You guys know what that is, right? It's like you get a little spring, oh, and you hit your windshield wipers, and you're like, I think there's rain up ahead. Get ready, get ready, get ready. I don't think that was it. I think it was God in his mercy going, church, I'll do it again. If I can find a people that will pray and contend, people that will not be content with status quo, who will not be complacent, who will not be distracted, who will not be lulled to sleep by a demonic lullaby that the spirit of this age is trying to use as a spiritual hospice for Jesus's church in the 21st century to keep the American church from rising up to be the giant in the land that they're called to be. If God says, if you'll be a praying people, I will pour out my spirit and it won't just be a sprinkling on the windshield. Your sons and daughters are gonna prophesy. Old men are going to have dreams. Young men are going to have visions. It's going to be a house of prayer for all nations. And it's going to be a renewed boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. When we pray, number three, prayer unifies us. And this is a beautiful thing. You know that Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, for it's there that God commands the blessing. There is a blessing that comes from the Lord when we are saved because we're brought into the family of God. But there is something that Psalm 133 calls the commanded blessing. It's a compounded, concentrated blessing of the Lord that only is released when there's unity. And what we see is when they prayed, it says in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that they had belonged to him or was their own. Some people have read that and go, oh, so, you know, the Bible's communistic or socialistic. No, this wasn't government forcing them to do this. This was the government of God overflowing out of them wanting to take care of one another. That's radically different. But it says they were one heart and one soul. Do you know that there is nothing that's impossible for a church that is unified? When we can get beyond our petty stuff, when we can forgive one another, you know, people are always saying, well, I can't go to church because I've been hurt at church. I get that. I'm a pastor. I've been hurt at church. Nobody told me in Bible college that sheep bite. And I'm sure I've, as a pastor, I'm imperfect. I've done things that have hurt people and other people. Do you know that God's not in heaven looking at the church going, what a mess. I didn't think that was going to happen. It was actually part of the process. Because he knows that the rough edges in us get sanded off by the friction that we have between us. But the enemy wants to isolate us from one another or keep us on this side of the sanctuary, or going to that service, or not talking to that person because I don't like their politics, because I don't like what they did or what they said, or they rubbed me the wrong way, or whatever. But I'll tell you what unifies a church, a prayer meeting. You get Christians in a room and God's presence shows up, all of a sudden your heart begins to melt. You begin to pray, because you can't hate somebody that you pray for. This is why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Because you can't hate them for long. Because you'll start out, God, kill them. But you'll end up, Lord, save them. Forgive them. You've been so good to me. His grace meets you. And when you prayed next to somebody in a prayer meeting and you've seen God respond and God move, it changes everything. But when God can get us together praying, he unifies us. And when there is unity, God commands a blessing. What changes 
what that supernatural it factor on a church that nobody can describe is actually kingdom unity. Unity around a vision, unity around authority, unity around a calling, unity around prayer. This is what they had. They were united together, but they were also unified with heaven because this is powerful. It's one thing to be united to one another, but prayer is where we come into unity with heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the prayer of agreement. And when we begin to step into agreement, there's a powerful exchange that takes place when we pray. We don't even see it and don't necessarily understand it and don't even understand how it happens. But when we come into unity with God, things begin to change. There's a nuclear reaction that happens. There was a movie that came out this summer called Oppenheimer. And I'm not necessarily endorsing films. I'm just telling you that this movie is... uh, a three-hour movie about a man named uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is a theoretical physicist, which means he's smart. And what he did was during World War II, there was a race to get to the nuclear bomb before Germany. And so the Americans, we had Albert Einstein, who had the theory of relativity, but it was only theory. And so we took the smartest theoretical physicist at that time, Oppenheimer, and and said to him, You need to figure out how to take the theory of atomic energy, which is a mathematical formula that you can print out on the board. We we understand that it's a theory, but you need to make it happen. How do we split the atomic? How do we split an atom that we can't see? How do we split it to release the atomic power that is within an atom so that we can weaponize it to end the war? and actually get to it before Hitler does so that he doesn't destroy the whole world. And so they went through this whole process and actually did get to the atomic bomb first. We dropped two of them on Japan. It literally ended World War II. But here's what J. Robert Oppenheimer said about the nuclear bomb. He's talking about the nations of the world. He says they won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will only take you so far. Church, I want you to know that there is a power in the universe far more powerful than the ability to split an atom. It's the power of prayer. You see, when you split an atom, all you've got is theory on a whiteboard. And then you bombard it with protons until what's on the inside of the base of the universe that you can't even see with your natural eye releases untold amounts of power and energy that can either be used to improve somebody's society or destroy a city. But it's locked up in the unseen. But before you can release what you can't see, you've got to bombard it and prayer is the bombarding of heaven with our words and our hearts and our wills coming into alignment with heaven that then splits the gap between earth and heaven and releases the power of heaven on a generation that releases a mushroom cloud 
ripple effect across our borders and changes people's lives in cities, states, and generations. That's what prayer is. <clears throat> but for most of the church in America, we're happy to have the formula on the chalkboard and keep it as a theory instead of bringing it into the lab and weaponizing our prayer. I'm gonna tell you what, the Bible says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard against it. And I've seen darkness permeate our land over the last decade in a way that I never thought I would see ever in my lifetime. But I can either look at it and say, darkness is telling me that our best days are behind us. Or I can look at the darkness and say, it's a setup for a nuclear reaction. And God's about ready to put on full display his power in one generation. He's about ready to release the power of heaven. He just needs a people who will pray, a people who will believe in it and who will bombard heaven to release the power. The last thing is, Prayer changes cities. And I believe this with all of my heart, that prayer changes cities. Verse 33, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Jerusalem was changed. And in the same way, prayer can change our city. Prayer can change our nation. 1857, it was a time of spiritual decline in America. And in 1857 in Manhattan, New York, a small reformed church hired a man named Jeremiah Kelvin Lampier to be an outreach pastor. To come on the staff, he was a retired businessman. We want you to come on staff and be the outreach pastor. Help us street evangelize and pass out tracts and witness and bring people in because we see that so many people are walking by churches and very few are going into them. And so when they hired Jeremiah Lampier, they said, whatever you wanna to do to reach the lost, go ahead, you've got our green light. So Jeremiah Lampier, before he ever went out and passed out a track, before he ever witnessed anyone, he started a prayer meeting. He did it at noon. He was a few blocks away from Wall Street, the financial epicenter of America at that time, still is, and even more so. But he said, I'm gonna start a prayer meeting at noon in September. And he put a trifold sign out, prayer meeting at noon. Join us. He set the time for noon and showed up at the venue for the prayer room, the, the prayer room that the church had dedicated, and for the first half an hour, nobody showed up. 30 minutes in, first person joined him for the prayer meeting, and before long, there were 17 that first day that prayed. But Jeremiah knew that the key to breakthrough in the city was prayer, so we're gonna do it again tomorrow. And they set Noon as their prayer time, and September 23rd was their first prayer meeting. By March of that year, 6,000 people were meeting at noon in prayer in 150 different prayer meetings across New York City. Giving their requests, praying together for revival in America and in New York City, across multiple denominations, something like 
17 different denominations, 18 denominations showed up and they prayed together daily. And not only did it impact New York, it began to sweep across America. I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I found in a book years ago that our city was impacted by this prayer meeting. A hundred yards from the room that we built during COVID as our prayer room, unbeknownst to us, that in 1858, there was a prayer meeting where over the course of eight weeks, 600 people gave their lives to Christ in a prayer revival in downtown Kalamazoo. All across America, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, Chicago, LA, Denver, Austin, Texas, Houston, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mobile, Alabama, People began at noontime to gather together and to pray, saying, God, you're our only hope. And all across America, the match was struck and the flames of revival were lit. And literally between the years 1858 to 1859, when America's population was 30 million people in one and a half year period of time, one million people, one out of every 30 people in America came to Christ and revival changed the course of our nation. Prayer shifts history, and it changes cities and nations. And listen to me right now, we've got two of the largest generations in American history alive at the same time. Millennials and Gen Z, 35 years and younger, make up 120 million out of our 335 million people in our population. Two generations that have never seen a move of God. Two generations that have been assaulted by hell itself to confuse their identity, to deconstruct their faith, to put their hopes in all kinds of other things, deconstructed and torn apart the nuclear family in a single generation, isolated them out of church, barraged them with social media, and all kinds, every, everything that hell has had its, at its disposal, it is thrown at this singular block of generation because he knows if I can break off the chain effect of one generation, if I can get two generations deep without a generation experiencing a move of God, then I can change the course of American history once and for all. But I believe the church in this hour owes that generation an encounter with Jesus. Those of us who have tasted, those of us who know what it is to counter the Lord, we owe that generation not to retire, but to refire. And it's time that we fight our battles on our knees together and we beseech heaven, the God of heaven who's still seated on the throne, whose robe still fills the temple, that angels still can't look at, who still cry out, holy, holy. It's time for us to say, God, move in this generation. And God says, I will if the church will pray. <laughs> I want to invite you to stand. <laughs> My voice gave, went just long enough. My voice is weak, but my spirit is strong.
And church, not trying to be trite, but I'll play right on it, that our voices become weak. But God wants to strengthen our spirit and our voice and our prayer once again. He wants this church to be a praying church. Detonating the supernatural power of heaven in the midst of a generation. And all across this room, if you will respond and saying to heaven, not to me, God, I am willing to give, change my life. I'm willing to give a thousand no's to some things so that I can give you my one yes and become a person of prayer. Commit myself to praying with the church, changing my schedule, changing my lifestyle. And I don't even know how to pray, but I'll learn to pray. I'm gonna get around it. And I'm gonna commit my life and believe that my prayer combined with other people's prayer matters and it will detonate things. And I'm saying, Lord, here am I. Use me to be one piece of what it means to be a praying church. I just want you to lift your hand all over this room. God's looking to recruit some atoms so that he can unleash the power of heaven that's on the inside of you all over this room. Father, I pray today all over this room and in every room that makes up the family of Emmanuel, I'm praying, Lord, that you would set the lumber on the altar exactly how it pleases you and that you would release the flame and the fire of heaven on this sacrificial yes. Lord, that you would turn this into a praying church even more so. And that out of this place, a mushroom cloud of your glory would sweep across this city, this region, and this state. Lord, anoint this house to pray like never before. Let there be a download and an impartation of the spirit of prayer in this house. Activate the embers of revival that are below the surface in this house. Blow upon them, wind of God, once again, and ignite the flames of prayer and revival in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, somebody. We cannot hear a word like that and just go, that was nice, without praying right now. Come on, church. It's our time to pray. And right now, I want you to recognize if you're a follower of Jesus, he's, he's forgiven your sins, he's cleansed you, then don't listen to the, to the enemy try to shame you that your voice doesn't matter. Your voice matters right now. You can pray. You can talk to Jesus. We're going to turn this into a prayer room just for a couple moments, if we will. And I want to invite you, the worship team is going to, to, to lead, but don't get caught up just in singing somebody else's words on a screen. Let the things that are inside your heart be made known before the throne of heaven right now. And I want to encourage you, if you want, you could find a spot up at the altars. You could slip out into the aisle. You could turn around in your chair and you could bend a knee. But let's turn this in to a prayer meeting where we seek the face of God. Come on, church, lift up your hands to him. Begin to talk to him. Open up your heart and your mouth and declare that he is Lord. Holy, holy, 
holy, holy. It's still true. It's still true. There's no one like you. There is no other hope, no other solution. You are the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We come straight to you on behalf of our families, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our state. We come before you, oh God, as a church. Stir our hearts to be a praying church, people who find our solution on our knees, talking to you. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you and Lord wake us up. Lord, that there be a, a movement in our spirit that's not just for one moment, but it's for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday where we look to you in every moment. We call upon your name. We're looking for you, Jesus. We're looking for you. Oh, that you are holy, holy, the open invitation, the table for the nations. You are
Jehová, oh, Dios, Jehová. 